The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, this is just a friendly reminder to make sure that you are registered to vote for the upcoming elections this November. Please text the word voter to 26797 to check your registration. You will also receive reminders for all local, state, and federal elections and your polling locations. And don't forget to follow I Am a Voter for more civic engagement opportunities. That's voter to 26797. Hi, this is Deborah Messing. I'm an actress and social justice advocate. I am Mandana Diani, creator and co-founder of the nonpartisan movement, I Am A Voter. So Mandana and I are best friends and activism is a huge part of our lives and who we are. We're constantly inspired by the incredible work people are doing every day all over the world. And then one day we realized something. Most of these people had no intention of becoming heroes. They're just accidental activists who knew something was not okay and chose to do something about it. In this podcast, we share the journeys of 20 of these dissenters who blew us away. Based on Ruth Bader Ginsburg's iconic I dissent slogan, a dissenter is someone who stood up to an injustice or challenged the status quo, someone who fought to build a better way. This week, we speak with our incredible friend, Cindy Eckert. Cindy is an entrepreneur pioneering sexual wellness who built and sold two pharmaceutical companies for more than $1.5 billion, including the first ever FDA-approved drug for low sexual desire in women. She also founded The Pink Ceiling, or Pinkubator, which invests in companies founded by or delivering products for women. Cindy is just incredibly captivating. She's driven, brilliant, funny, fabulous, and always in pink. She continues to break barriers by investing in and mentoring other women on a mission to make women really rich. And now, it is our greatest honor to introduce you to the amazing dissenter, Cindy Eckert, the sexual revolutionist. Oh my God, the bar is so high. Let's that's talk. <laughs> no, <laughs> this is so fun. Let's talk about sex. Let's yes, talk about let's sexuality. Okay, so Cindy, hello. I wish people could see you. <laughs> you're just so awesome. Um, okay, so we, you know, as Deborah likes to say, we always like to start at the beginning. So tell us um, a little bit about your childhood and what it was like to move around all the time and. Yeah. You know, I go from being like a blue collar kid in upstate New York, Rochester, New York. Everybody's family worked in like the factory for Uh Kodak. And my dad comes home one day and he says, hey, would you like to go to Fiji? I'd never even heard of Fiji. Like I ran to the (laughs) living room and like spun the globe. And I was like, that's all the way on the other side of the world. I said, yeah, I want to go. My dad said, great, because we're moving there. So like you naturally do, you go from Rochester, New York to the Fiji Islands. Oh, my um, God. But that says a lot about my dad and I think wow. the adventurer spirit. And then from there, it became a childhood where every year from the fourth grade through my senior year of high school, I moved. So I was like the perpetual new kid standing on the outside of the room. Wow. And the beauty of that is that it really, I think, got me very comfortable being uncomfortable. And forming my own opinion and taking on things that might not be popular because you better believe I was not popular when I showed up at a new school every year. Wow. Yeah, I guess that must have profoundly affected how you turned out to be. You know, I think in in looking back, no doubt about it. I'm sure like at the time I went kicking and screaming. I had just gotten friends. It was being disrupted again. And yet, you know, in hindsight, like now in my career, I think that was so great 
because it formed this, again, like comfort with discomfort, taking on new challenges. And also, I think, really like a perspective of very different points of view. Like, can you imagine? Were you always this driven? Like, I I just picture you as like— Yeah, I've got to tell you, I have two big brothers, and they will tell you that there wasn't a single game that I played in which I was not the CEO from the time I was very little. Oh, my God. I'm telling you that part of that was their manipulation. So I used to, like, have a—one of our little games was I had, like, CK's Kitchen, and it was so that I would deliver, like, snacks to my brothers on the couch. So they were completely manipulating me. That's amazing. But I loved it because I was running my own business, and they were paying me. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I think there—you know, there's always been—I think there's always been drive, but, but more than that, curiosity. And I think that ignited young, and it's definitely a quality of my parents. It's like this curiosity to explore and learn new things. You were raised an Irish Catholic. Totally. <laughs> was your family considered conservative? Um, you know, I think traditional, like cradle Catholics. And I think that's been interesting as I've taken this on. I mean, my joke to people when they say, how the hell did you get into the field of sexual medicine? Yeah. Is I basically say, oh. Irish Catholic. And really, my mom says, can you please stop saying that? (laughs) (laughs) Like on every stage, Cindy, please quit saying that. Um, But, you know, the sexuality for me, so I was, I love science. No, I was in this space and I, I I mean, I went into the industry and that's an area that's really relatively young scientifically. Right. And so fascinating to me, taboos to me are quite fascinating that are so integral to the human experience. Right. And so I think, again, that curiosity. But it, the blush factor is probably pretty high in my family. So so you started Sprout I Pharmaceuticals. Did. Yeah. What was that like? So my progression was I went to the biggest, one of the biggest companies out of school because, yeah. you know, I wanted to go work for the best. And at the time, they happened to be Fortune's most admired company. I think it could have actually been any industry. I just wanted to learn from the best. It happened to be Merck at the time, which Mm -hmm. was a pharmaceutical company. And I went there, and I fell in love with the science, and I hated how things got done. And I recognized that, one, I would never fit in an environment in which I was not heard. That was going to be miserable for me and everybody around me. And, (laughs) um, And that real innovation took place in these small, very committed companies, and I chased innovation. And I went from a smaller to a smaller to a smaller company until, honestly, I was sort of crazy enough to start one for myself, but believed that I could round up people who were in this industry who had a true love of science, but were uninspired by how or the industry was going and corral them, put them together against a great project, and they would excel. So my first company actually was one of the male drugs. I know, yes. right? We were talking so about that, that was so. Sprout was sort of chapter two, right? And thank goodness that I had walked that path of a startup and all of the struggles of you know getting that raising money for it, getting it started, and because of that, got a beat on the science for women, right? And really made what my board thought was the craziest decision, which was to take something profitable, just go back down to zero and take this on for women. <laughs> that was crazy, right? They, the first time I said, hey, we're, we're going to sell this business and, and take a shot for women, the answer was, uh, hell no. And so how crazy? was that first exit? Uh, so it was good. I mean, we had built a, we had built a you know, the thesis had, had paid off. Like, the, it had been proven, and my thesis was there are a lot of people like me who love the science but are in an industry that is yeah. not serving them well. 
And if I could put them together, we could do something really special. And we did actually with Slate. It was why, it's honestly why I named it Slate. Clean Slate, on my own terms. Mm. I was going to do it differently. And really, I had to sell it in order to get enough money to be able to take this on for women. So I, I sold it. I went to all my shareholders. I reached my hand back out and I said, give me some of it back because we're going again. Oh, my and God. And they actually did. Wow. Really? Which was awesome. Yeah. And that's because we built something, I think, really special in, in, you know, in the years of Slate. And it's really why I got the science, because the thought leaders in the community of sexual medicine, you know, study men and women alike. And I think they saw how we showed up very differently and then became a champion for why we were the ones to take this science on. And why hadn't anyone else taken it on? Oh, my God. So here's the dirty little secret is uh, it's not that companies don't recognize the market opportunity. It's that they know that the path will be longer and the hurdles will be higher. And, and so they just health. don't want to deal. And so they run screaming. Like, they, they run screaming from spectacular science. Actually, the science of what unlocks desire in women is relatively new understanding from a biological basis. And it's spectacular. And every company is running away. And that just ignited me. Is it because it because it was going to be longer, it was going to be more expensive, and they just felt like— And it's because we don't— They have a societal narrative that places no value on female pleasure. Mm-hmm. And actually, maybe it's the very worst in sex, but it's really pervasive across healthcare that if something goes wrong for a man, we go, oh, biology. We need to fix that. If something goes wrong for a woman, we go, oh, psychology. And we pat her on the shoulder— and we tell her to take a vacation or a bubble bath. Have a glass of wine. wine. It's going to be okay. Ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's not that conditions aren't multifactorial. It's not that we don't have, you know, biopsychosocial dynamics and a lot of different conditions. But the idea that we can just take biology and carve it totally out for women, mm-hmm. ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Like, truly ridiculous. And it plays out in the data. So truly, if you go into a, an ER, so a guy walked up, presented with symptoms. You walked up one minute after him. You gave an identical, identical list of symptoms. You would wait much longer because they would think you're just freaking out. Oh, my God. And that's, a, I mean, that's a huge issue that we just dismissed this. Well, it's the hysteria. Totally. The hysteria. Yeah. And now, a quick break to talk about our new brand partner, Clean Cause. 50% profits support individuals in recovery from alcohol and drug addiction. Addiction is an epidemic that is rocking our country, and Clean Cause is on a mission to support recovery in America. To date, Clean Cause has granted over 1,500 sober living scholarships, representing more than $750,000. Clean Cause gives where you swig and allocates sober living scholarships across the country. Clean Cause is an organic sparkling yerba mate containing 160 milligrams better caffeine, so you get a pick-me-up without the crash or the jitters. It is available in eight refreshing flavors, including blackberry, watermelon mint, peach, and cherry lime. They're also good. I honestly can't pick a favorite. Clean Cause is available nationwide at Whole Foods, on Amazon, and at cleancause.com. September is National Recovery Month, 
And we're giving you a special code so you can take 20% off your next purchase at cleancause.com using the code dissenters. Every purchase makes a difference in the fight against addiction. Again, the code is dissenters, D-I-S-S-E-N-T-E-R-S. Okay, let's get back to the episode. I mean, how long did it take you to create Addie? Like, what was that, yeah. that process? So so it was the—I got a beat on the science out of Germany. A German company had innovated this science, and uh, and they were burying it. And they were burying it because when it sort of made the light of day, everyone was hypercritical. Oh, I mean, is this, do women really need this? Like, what's the value? It was really so vilified, if you will— um, that they were literally going to shelve it. And and I said, no way. It's when I sold off Slate. I went over to Germany. I said, I want to take this on. And actually, to their credit, like they've never done a deal like this. They said, here, you can have it. Are you serious? No Which way. was like, good luck. <laughs> That's how much they just wanted it gone. Bye. Like not going to take it on. You know, people have a real reaction. I mean, my parents go back to my parents, right? They often say, like, could you have not done something in diabetes? <laughs> and the reason they say <laughs> that really is, funny. you know, if you're not diabetic, you don't have a point of view. But if it's sex, you have a point of view. And it's really so that I start out, I go over there, I get the science, I sit down with the FDA and I say, okay, like, what's the roadmap? They had already given some some information to this German company. And it's really like double-blinded, placebo-controlled trials, statistical significance against outcomes that are, you know, with the— Yeah. I mean, it's it's science. It's very straightforward. Mm-hmm. And we went out and we did the work and we met all the outcomes. And, and I sorry, waited. at this point, how many versions of male Viagra are there? So, so across male sexual dysfunction, there are 26 different drugs that are approved. <laughs> and how many are there for women? So now there are two, and we broke through with the first ever. Wow. Okay. And that was our goal. Like, I didn't, you know, we didn't want to break through to be the one and only. We wanted to open the floodgates because we deserve as many options. Once you have more options, you have better patient conversations, you have better outcomes. Mm -hmm. And the idea, I when I started this, there were 25 drugs for men. There were 26 by the time I got to the other end. And let me tell you a little bit of the tale of two sexes. So Viagra was approved back in the late 90s. When they went forward to the FDA for approval, it was deemed to meet such an important unmet medical need. <laughs> it was a national emergency. <gasps> Lady said, no, no man was having an erection. That it was actually fast-tracked for approval. Oh, my gosh. So it got through the FDA in six months. Okay? So you better believe I asked for fast-track approval, but considering the incidence of this for women is the same as ED for men, it took me six years. Are you serious? Six years through the regulatory queue, many more if you count all the years of R and D, and um, and we had three times as many patients worth of data. Oh god! When the twenty sixth drug was approved um, for for men, <laughs> the risk profile was so profound, and it was so many like the, it was a fraction of our patients. Like it was sub one thousand patients. We had thirteen thousand women worth of data on Addy. And I think that was really, that that ignited actually the women's health and rights community when that happened. Why did you think this, this choice was important for women? Well, first of all, I hate an idea 
all medication come down to benefit and risk, right? There are risks to all medications. Oh my God. And by the way, when you listen to them, they're like, your head might fall right. off. And I know. Right. Like, right. And you're like, oh, okay. Even over the counter, right? Things yeah. that we don't even get by prescription, even you know, supplements that have interactions. But the idea is nobody gets to judge whether or not you get it. Like my obligation is to get all of the data, right? Really right. be fulsome in that. But then really that decision is handed over to you on the benefit risk. And what made me so mad is that we thought there was no value to improving this for women. And when I got a beat on the science, I spent a year just meeting with women and listening to their stories. And, you know, as I became a crusader in this, people said, well, come on, like Cindy, nobody's going to lose their life from this. And what I said is go talk to them because they're losing their life as they know it. And it's affecting how they feel about themselves. It's affecting their relationships. And like, that is not okay. When the science is there and given us the answer, we don't get to make a value judgment on whether or not you deserve it. You get to make that decision. Well, it just seems so historical. Yes. You know, women being the second sex. Totally. And my reaction is, oh, of course, they don't want to take this on because it's threatening because it will equalize women. And doesn't that always just eventually come back to choice? A hundred percent. And I think, look, here's my radical thought. You can't go through the female sexual revolution and stop at reproduction. And part of my feeling of why we still stay in this, like we advance, we go back, and there's so much control there, is that actually we as women haven't owned it all the way through pleasure. And once you own it through pleasure, the control leaves. I do think it's incredibly intimidating to sort of the societal fabric, a woman totally in charge, even of her own sexual pleasure. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's so necessary, and it's such a piece of our feminine power. I mean, for me, being in touch with that is a lot about even my boardroom power. Right. Mm -hmm. Truly. And that we would rob you of that piece just doesn't make any sense. So what happened? What was that process yeah. with the FDA like? So I, here's, you know, me, just geeky scientists. <laughs> like, we we have done the work. <laughs> we have met all the endpoints. Oh, I'm going to get an approval. Um, so excited. Largest new drug application for women. We submit it. I wait. And we get turned down. And I really, I got the news on a Friday. And I've I've told this story before, but I really I got I had just landed back and I'm based in Raleigh at the airport, and I sat down and I was just I was dumbfounded. Like that was the end of the company. They completely controlled my fate. I'd done the work. We'd met the outcomes, and I was thinking, what am I going to go tell my team? And we yeah. were this small team, but you know, truly committed to changing this forever for women. And um, and I went to the office and got everybody around, and I said, here's what happened. And I swear to God, they were all just like, okay, well, I'm going home to work on my resume. And I took to the bed and cried it out. And then I went back to my inbox, and woman after woman after woman had written me and said, thank you for letting me know I'm not alone. Thank you for letting me know there's a name for this. Thank you for letting me know that the science has been here since 1977. Stop. Even though we haven't listened to it. And on Monday, I went in and I said, we're going to dispute the FDA. I will tell you, it's the road less traveled to take on the government. Um, and, and we were this small company. Nobody, you know, we were small. We were private. 
And all of a sudden, we dispute the FDA, Nightline shows up in our building, and it became a very public conversation, but it deserved to be. Because when you have conditions in which there aren't solutions, the patient should be the center of the conversation. And actually, one of the best examples of that was with um, the AIDS movement and with the medications for mm-hmm, HIV, mm-hmm. that really patient advocacy became so critically important where they said, I understand these are the risks, but this is my life, right. and I get to choose. And so that was really sort of what happened is this very public conversation. And I got to tell you, like, these moments are etched in my mind forever because I was sitting at a federal agency in D.C., and women had flown in from all over the country. They had arranged for childcare, they had taken time off of work, and they had come to tell what's going on beyond behind their bedroom doors to change it for other women. And the comments that were made to them, like the comments at the public mic, you could not believe that we were in, you know, 2015, 14 at that time. Extraordinary. What were they saying? Give us examples. So, you know, there was a—and actually, by the way, it wasn't male and female. There were women that got up and said these things as well. So, you know, women burying their souls, talking about how their marriages are falling apart. Mm. And they said, get a new husband. Oh, my God. Stop. Buy sexier lingerie. Buy a better shower head. No. Yeah. And I thought, what, what is going on? Like, how is there no empathy? How is there no—are you not listening so to anything that there's women to be 100%. that vulnerable? That has totally shaped my path forward. I mean, you can imagine, like, me in pink. I don't look like <laughs> somebody who fits in this industry by all the numbers. Healthcare companies aren't run by women. So, like, all through the career, there had been adversity in a male-dominated industry. But, like, I was going to get through it. But actually to witness that sort of against all women really is why I do the work I do today inside the Pink Ceiling and Pinky Vader. Like, that was a huge lesson in terms of what it means to advocate, not only for yourself, but for each other. That was very brave of them to show up. They're the heroes of the story. I remember reading that you said, someone at the FDA said, do we really want a bunch of horny women running around? Yeah, that's, oh. the, that's the starting point in this conversation. Well, what do you say to that? I, I, I look at and say, what year is this? Like, I don't even know what we're talking about. Like, this is science. Science has shown us that there's a biological basis for some women. We've known about this condition since 1977. Masters and Johnson used to talk about it. I mean, what what are we doing here? I know. And I remember you were telling me about how you guys, like, they literally had scans. And you could see yes. oh, and the MRI. how the yeah. brain would respond. And, and you show this. Yes. And they're like, eh. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you, truly, like, it's sort of like, let's not be bothered with science. Uh, let's just stick with the, you know, the societal narrative that says, like, women, pleasure for women isn't valued. And does it matter? really matter? And here's why right? We can have sex whether or not we want it. Right. And so this idea, I mean, I hope nobody does that, by the way, like this idea that, you know, you say, just fake it, just lie there, do whatever. Hell no, never fake it. Like you deserve that pleasure um, as well, but like we don't value it. We're, We're only seen as reproductive beings and beyond that, like totally disregarded. So is this when you launched the the Right to Desire campaign? So not until I got it back. So I'll tell you oh, the other twists okay, and no, turns no, no. in my oh, story. Right. So so here we are. I'll, the sort of crescendo of the story is there were all of these public meetings. Women got a chance to speak at the microphone. The most incredible women's rights and women's health leaders showed up. 
and asked critical questions. And then the FDA in the last minute sort of assembled a panel of scientific experts to help them decide. And they voted overwhelmingly to approve the drug. No. On the basis of data. Amazing. Like, surprise. <laughs> so we we win. We get this approval. I get the entrepreneur's dream come true. A huge company comes in. Holy crap, she's done it. We were 35 people when we crossed the finish line with this first drug. And so they could march it across the globe and make it affordable. So I sold the business. Um, and and how, what did that look like, Cindy? That was a billion-dollar exit. That was a big week. <laughs> there we go. That was a billion dollars up front. And th- then— it wasn't a billion-dollar happy ending. I love that you just didn't go to a beach and retire. <laughs> no There's way. just no part of you that was going to, that had no that way. in the cards. No, really not having, like, sat in those rooms and witnessed all of that. Like, there was work to be done, and I was going to get other women there faster than I got there myself, and really, in healthcare in particular, reform. So here I am. All right, they're going to do it, and I'm going to stay, and my team's going to stay, and we're going to build this brilliant women's health company. And then they call and invite me to leave. Uh, yeah. And, you know, Mama Bear, like, I'm I'm the crazy founder, and the, their company had hit some financial trouble. They're going sideways, and I'm, you know, yelling and screaming, like, what the hell's going on? And so they said, you have to go. And, you know, I don't—they bought my company for a lot of money, and I thought, okay— I'm going to step to the sidelines, but at least my team is there. And in three months, my whole team was gone. (gasps) And then they put it on the shelf. And it was, we did not fight that. And we, by we, I mean the collective we of women did not fight that hard to finally get one that so many women, millions of women are affected by this. Yeah, by the way, can we talk about that? How many women have this? So if you, by all of the um, data, 43% 43% of women say they have some kind of complaint in the bedroom, some kind of sexual issue. For women, you look at it as desire, arousal, orgasm, and pain. Like, that's how you study it. Mm-hmm. Desire is by far the most common, and it's about 10% of all women. And it's really like there's a cascade, right? You got to want it, mm-hmm. and then hopefully the rest sort of flows. Yep. Um, so it's the biggest issue for women. So it's a huge prevalence. I mean, millions of women are affected by this, and we were completely ignoring it. <laughs> and, and the thing that is is gobsmacking to me is the idea that they were they wanted to be in control of it and to keep it off the market enough that it was worth paying a billion dollars with a B. Listen, I could not have written this movie. Like I kind of dreamed this scenario up. It was like the world went boom, uh, and they weren't launching it. And I was I'm like mystery shopping it, like showing up with my prescription for it and trying to get it at, you know, CVS and Walgreens. And they're saying, oh, the drug's been pulled from the market. Oh, like the stories I heard. And I'm thinking, is that right? Because I might know something else. <laughs> um, and so I, I really said, all right, get your shit together, Cindy. Like you got to go out and still do good. I started funding these other companies in healthcare. I like, you know, sort of got through my my um, sadness by saying, okay, but we're still going to have positive motion. And then I went and knocked on their door and I said, give me the damn drug back. And no. they said, oh, we paid a billion dollars for it. And I said, yeah, but I wrote a contract in which you had really specific obligations about how you would educate the market, how you would call on OBGYNs across the country, and you're not doing any of it, so I'm suing you. In exchange for dropping the lawsuit, I got the product back, but I kept the billion. 
No. <laughs> and you paid <laughs> nothing to get it back. No. Uh-uh. No way. Yeah. I love you. Yes. So that's really <gasps> now the so much fun. So good. Is that it's launched and like two weeks ago we turned on radio ads. Two weeks and I cried like a baby. I know. My little Instagram video. You were so I was like, cute. I've been waiting ten years for this moment, and finally we're talking about this issue. Like it's really, it's really cool. That's wow. incredible. It's really fun. It's so fun to see it finally because look, it it was like the worst for me that all those women who had written me, who'd been hopeful, who'd been waiting, all of a sudden couldn't get access again, even though we'd won fair and square on the science. (laughs) (laughs) And so I remember you said that there were still some issues with the FDA. Yeah, you know, the it's been a it's been a long journey um with them and I think because it became so public, the FDA has great people in it, but they're human. And I think what we forget is there's human bias in there as well. Mm-hmm. And I think there was, you know, definitely some bias against obviously based on some of the comments that were made and it was sort of unprecedented how this whole story has gone. Addie doesn't meet any of the norms for any process, how long it took, um, you know, all of those things. And so I think, you know, there has been um, some bad feelings and therefore different standards for the drug. I'd love to tell you that I'm so noble. I studied it in 13,000 women, but the average new drug approval in the U.S. is 760 patients. I studied it in 13,000 women because I was required to. No. To keep doing study after study after study. And you can imagine I'm I'm building this startup and I'm taking on something that is already so unlikely, right, to be able to cross this finish line. And every time it's like, that's $7 million more. That's $10 million more. That's $20 million for these studies. And so, um, yeah, when I came back, there was still a little bit of unfinished business uh, with the label and some of the additional um, studies that would inform the label, I thought, more scientifically, fairly, uh, for women than it had been before. So we won that at the end of last year, and that's really what let us uh, turn on real marketing today. Oh, because I was going to ask you, there were, all, yeah, there were a few of those there restrictions. Were. So some of the were. restrictions were around um, alcohol use mm-hmm. with the product, and, and that was based on a— you do all these challenge studies with drugs, so it was almost like a binge drinking scenario. But here's the study design. It was healthy volunteers who had— basically two to four shots of grain alcohol in 10 minutes at nine in the morning and took the medication. <laughs> in our okay. big studies, 58% of the women said they were social drinkers. They drank wine with dinner. They had beer at the barbecue. Right. But every single day, we weren't saying, did you have you know two ounces, six ounces? It wasn't required. So when we did that big challenge study, Cialis had done a similar challenge study. And so in their label, they'd say to guys— if you have five or more drinks, don't take your Cialis that night. Our label was women may never drink. And furthermore, your doctor has to take a test to prescribe it. Oh, that's crazy. Your pharmacist has to take a test to dispense it. And you, women, have to sign a piece of paper promising you won't drink. Oh, my God. That's so disgusting. That's what you had told me last year that blew my mind. And I'm not minimizing the risk. Like, I, do, I have to say, you know, with Addie works on the central nervous system. When you combine— agents that work on your central nervous system, alcohol, other things, like you have to have caution. But what I said is this is not how it's real world scenario. 
100% of a woman is out at the bachelorette, she should skip her dose that evening. And that needs, she needs to be informed of that. But like, let's really do the studies in a real world way. Like, let's have you have one or two glasses of wine with dinner, go to bed several hours later, take your Addy at bedtime as, as directed, and monitor you overnight. Like, if you get up and have to pee, right. does something happen? Right. No. And so we did all of that, and the label got revised to basically, if you have two or more drinks, you wait two hours. So, like, if you had it with dinner, wait mm-hmm. a couple hours before you take Addy at bedtime. Or if you have three or more, skip, your, skip in the evening, close in time to dosing, skip your dose that evening. Like, that's, that's good reasonable. information. Totally. That that's informative, mm-hmm. but that's a radical difference. Radical difference. Yeah. From where we were. And for me, like, can you imagine? I can't, I mean, I'm so close to it, right? I know all the data. But I was thinking, what, what, what does a woman think who comes in and all of a sudden her doctor is like, hey, and by the way, I'm going to need you to sign a piece of paper. There's a wonderful thought leader in this field. And he said, in my entire years of practicing medicine, and he's been in practice 35 years, Nothing has ever made me feel worse as a clinician in terms of breaking the, like, patient-provider trust. Wow. 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 And so it's it's sort of historic—this drug has, like, the craziest stories, but again— million million dollars later, after studies last year to prove it, they um, have changed the label. And we turned on advertising because now you can— Oh well, but, and you, I mean, you, you had to break through so much to get there. Oh my gosh. Even honestly, like when we turned on our first ads on, uh, you know, Facebook and Google, they were all shut down because you're not allowed to have a sexual enhancement product for women. I said, wait, wait, like this is, this is uh, proven scientifically. We're approved by the Food and Drug Administration, by Health Canada, right? We're all of these different agencies across the world. And like, to their credit, we've gotten there, but everything is the breaking it down over and over again. It doesn't hold you back. That's the craziest part. You're just like, bring it on. I love it. There was this quote that you said, there truly aren't two more powerful words in our vocabularies than watch me. Yeah. That's and that's just so you. You're like, uh-huh. Okay, fine. Watch me. I yeah, that's love right. That. Yeah. That's, I mean, I think that is from the treatment always, like going into these rooms where I was unexpected. And, you know, there was a moment, I think, where it could have crushed you if it made you reel back in doubt or even just in frustration. Right. Right. And for me, I think I flipped it and I went right for it and, and gamified it. Like, ah, oh, watch me. Oh, you don't think this? Come and watch this. <laughs> right. And so when did you launch the pink ceiling or the, the pink incubator? Yeah, the pink incubator was in uh, 2016. So I sold the business in 2015. I was gone by the end of that year. And uh, and that was when I sort of pulled myself up by the bootstraps or stiletto straps, as it may be, and launched uh, pink ceiling <laughs> and pink incubator. Because I knew there were other there were women like me out there who were, I think in so many of these areas too, it's going to take a woman to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. And, and they walk into the, you know, venture firms who don't give the money anyway by all the data, 2%, right, goes to women. Yeah. But they walk in and they're told it's a niche market. Half the population. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Th- that, that's not niche. Crazy. Sorry. <laughs> right? And so, I mean, and I, how lucky for me, like I have incredible products coming out of that and, you know, these incredible founders and why they invented it. But can you explain what it is? Yeah. So so basically, it's my money where my mouth is. I didn't raise a fund. Like, it's my proceeds. Um, from oh, this is my your own, money. Just my money. It. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. amazing. So okay. I fund it. And, 
And it's really to help them get there faster. So I give them access to my team that have helped me build two companies. We really are very hands-on and we build it with them. So we help these products get to market. Um, it's really, it's pretty fun. So like you're, you're your own little shark tank. Like people come and they oh, pitch yeah. you things yeah. and then you decide. Yes. And, we, you're gonna, and, and I hear a lot of in, great investable ideas that are maybe in beauty or fashion and mm-hmm. I love them, but I'm, I usually pass them on to somebody else doing that work. Like, I really want the geeks to win. Like I want the, <laughs> I need the like engineers and the scientists. We have a pipeline issue here with nobody doing this work because sort of nobody believes that it'll ever get to the light of day. Right. And um, so I'll give examples. This flushable pregnancy test that we mm-hmm. have, it's about to come to market. It's 100% biodegradable. Bethany is a powerhouse of a founder And it's just so cool. Like 80% of pregnancy tests today are plastic Plastic, and they don't have to be. And what's crazy to me though with Bethany is that when she first showed up in the room with such a great idea, everybody said, oh, is this just for girls to like hide the evidence? And like, that's our starting point. And so you think, well, Bethany's success. planet. And really like discretion is entirely our decision. I mean, women test at work. They don't necessarily want it around. How about an infertility patient who doesn't want to be reminded she's not pregnant again, right. walking into her bathroom? Like, there's no compassion around that. And I think I get as excited about, you know, the disruptive technology as I do about disrupting the narrative. Will you uh, talk about that, the technology, the, the nail technology? Because yes. that to me is astounding. It's so incredible. And it's basically, I can dip my finger in a drink and with a droplet of water in 30 seconds, tell you if there's a date rape drug in that drink. That's the craziest thing I, I've ever I can't heard in my even, life. Even, I can't even wrap my incredible. head around this. It's when does so, this come out? Um, so it's on the market now. It's called Sip Chip. So you can get it. And what? Um, yeah, we'll do a big push um, toward the later of this, toward I'm the end of the year. I'm buy this for everyone I've ever heard I mean, you know, my... Um, these things take time sometimes to go through the the queue. There's such art um, in terms of the technology. But my both of my nieces at the time were in college when it first came across my door. And I was like, man, I can't get this to market fast enough. And I watched them. Like, I go, I would be out at the bars and they would have their hand, like, you know, over their drink because they're so tuned into it. And I thought, man, I wasn't doing that no. in college. But the, the consciousness of how common this is now, I mean, it's outrageous. Everything— Everything we do in the Pinkubator is about power in the hands of women. You have the power. Like, you get to test whether or not there's a date rape drug in there. You get to decide, you know, what if you want an eco-friendly um, pregnancy test or the discretion of it because you can flush it away. Like, all of this, you get to decide if you want something for your sexual pleasure because you're not where you want to be in terms of, you know, desire or you've lost that interest. So it's pretty cool. I didn't even know that we didn't have these choices. And I think that's what was so enlightening about meeting you. Yeah. Was just, we're so behind that we don't even know that that these options could have been available to yeah. us. Well, I think we don't talk about these issues necessarily. And that's so much about, you know, the right to desire campaign and even using a little bit of humor mm-hmm. to say, like, point out the absurdity that we're not discussing it. And I think the real kindness it is to one another to talk about it with your girlfriends and your, you know, sisters and daughters and why it is so important that we do that. Because I think otherwise, it's really just so woven in that we accept, like we don't even recognize to your point, 
Like, I have a right to this. I think we discussed this, but you know, my husband, I had to do IVF for both of my kids and I had endometriosis, which no one ever talked to me about. Yeah. And I thought I was so broken mm-hmm. because no one had talked about it. Of course. And so you just, you have no idea that this is normal. Yeah. And that there's a solution. That's right. <laughs> After that point, I was like, this is something that I'm going to say yeah. as much as I can if anyone sure. gives a shit because it's just so helpful to it's understand so helpful. that like there's not something wrong with you because I'm competitive. I was like, I am failing. Sure. I have never failed. Sure. Um, but that's why I think the stories that you're saying are so important to share because it, the validation, but also this idea that like there is a solution. Yeah. Right? That story is really that was a huge moment for me in that weekend that I was sitting with this turndown from the FDA. A woman actually had written me. She was in the open label trials, which means she knew she was on Addy. And she said, can I, I need to meet with you. And it's so funny that you say this because she, you know, walked into the room. I said, sure, I'm, I'm happy to meet with you. And I think she knew like it was, I was potentially going to give up because uh, she was following so closely that the news had come through. We'd been turned down. And she walked into the room and like, we didn't know each other. I saw her like from across the room and I knew it was her because she was so type A, so in charge, which is classical actually for women with this condition. And this is how she described her story. I've raised two beautiful boys. I run a company of my own. I love my husband dearly. I have succeeded in every aspect of my life other than this. Oh, wow. Wow. And, And I said to her, like, can I show you something? And I popped open my, like, MacBook. I'm showing her the brain scan images in black and white. And then, like, I turn and she's just crying. And that was really the moment I was like, I'm going to dispute the FDA. Mm. Because it's for this validation. A thousand times she had raised her hand and said, something's wrong. Something's changed. And somebody had patted her on their shoulder. And what she had done is turned on herself and decided that it was her own failure yeah. and that she was alone in it. That is the, if you went to my inbox today, that would be 90% of the messages that come to me that say, thank you for letting me know I'm not alone. Thank you for letting me know there's a name for this. Yes. So is this something that that comes with hormonal change? or It's actually non-hormonal. So that surprises a lot of people. Mm-hmm. It's not that hormones aren't uh, meaningful postmenopausally to consider, um, but really desire uh, ignites in the brain. Right. We are very animalistic when we have sex. Like we both, basically I described it as closing all the tabs um, (laughs) to really get into it. And, um, and for, you know, some women, they literally don't shut down. And the way that they will describe it is like, I'm lying in bed, I'm doing my to-do list. I can't, like they are never shutting down and they once did. Wow. So somebody lifelong, like has never had any interest in sex. They're asexual like not not what this is, but somebody who once had like a healthy appetite for sex, uh-huh. it's changed. And like they really will say almost like the switch went off. Wow. And what's so interesting about the drug is, you know, if a woman is responding to it, the first thing they typically say is that they're fantasizing. Mm. Which is really tells you like we are like wired with this sort of appetite or hunger mm-hmm. for sex. Mm-hmm. And it's not like you know, zero to 60, like, let's go, babe, like, right now, let's do it. (laughs) And female Viagra kind of creates that notion in people's minds, and it couldn't be further from how it works. It's really like igniting that sexual center of the brain that's like, you know, responding to cues or thinking about it. So. 
So what hap- What do you do next? What happens? <laughs> what do we do next? Um, you know, I think we actually, we talk about it. That's the next frontier. I mean, like I said, the next frontier of the female sexual revolution is owning pleasure. And I think that now is the time that women are willing to talk about it openly and sort of not going to take it anymore. And that's, you know, huge. I mean, that's what I've hoped for all along. I don't know why we don't see, you know, women, when when it's so pervasive, like how do we not ever see this in a storyline? Why don't we know, why don't we talk about these women mm-hmm. even, you know, in what we, the content we consume? And so I think that's really what will happen next is we will actually get there. And a lot of this other uh, power struggle in terms of women's sexuality will will fall away. And do you think we'll start seeing more investment in women's health, hundred percent, we have really. So, and and I'm not I'm not taking the credit, but I'll tell you, I, I gave everybody a billion reasons why they should believe. Uh, and I like to call <laughs> guys in, in um, I like to call the guys in the Silicon Valley and, and tell them that. Um, but yeah, I think we'll see a ton more investment in women's health. Um, it's one of the biggest investment categories to come, and it's high damn time. We are working really closely, like with the medical groups about how you add this into the questions. So I call it add one question. I think Mm. I've told you about it, which is really like you're asked three questions. Are you sexually active? Do you want birth control? Do you want to be tested for STDs? If we would add one question and say, and are you satisfied? We would open up permission. That would be huge. And it's ever so simple. You're a hero. Oh, that's so sweet. We're all doing the work, right? So insane. Cindy! I just love <laughs> thinking about your girls growing up in a completely different world than we grew up. Yes. I love of, that idea. You know? Mm-hmm. I really do. I cannot even imagine. Do, do we need more opinions? women in STEM? Uh, I mean, I got to tell you, the fact that 3% of healthcare companies are run by women, and I mean, we all know the data about how much women control in terms of household decisions, up that by a, a factor when it comes to healthcare the decisions for our families, for our partners, and everything mm-hmm. else. It is, of course, you need more women. How do we do that? How do we get people to be excited about that? Well, you know, look, I'll, I'll tell you honestly, like I have a lot of friends who don't love the pharmaceutical industry, mm-hmm. right? It's very, it's very hard in the light of day. Of course, if they have cancer or others, they love it, uh, right? It's the moments when we need it or our child is sick. And I, I can sometimes be criticized for that. And I think that leaves an impression for women who wouldn't want to go into that industry. But what I would say to you is, how do you change it if not from within? Like, yeah, how do you not change course. it and lead in a different way? Right. And really, just much like the inventions that come through the incubator, you know, I believe that only a woman would have invented a flushable pregnancy test. Absolutely. Only a woman would have come up with that. And therefore, like for innovation, we need them to find this as sexy and not sort of participating with the wrong crowd. Totally. Like we've got mm. to change, we got to flip that a little bit. And I'm I'm up against that all the time, right? Where people are like, ugh, you know, and I I think, God, I, I couldn't be less like the industry. <laughs> um, none of the boys would ever claim me, God forbid, in that industry, right? Among their <laughs> circles. Uh, but, you know, that's how you do it. And so we've got to show them that, that there can be real good and real change um, if they join it. When did you start wearing pink? 
Uh, my whole life. So I really, I swear to God, my parents made a terrible decision when I was a little girl and they let me pick out my own shag carpet and it was pink and purple. <laughs> so oh my God. I don't know what they were thinking. Um, but really, I've loved it my whole life. But but I've worn it really like consistently since people started patting me on the shoulders and saying, oh, that's cute, the little pink pill. Mm. And I think, you know, gender stereotypes, like the perception of pink being weakness I mean, it's so ridiculous, right? Femininity is strength. And so you can either like reel back from it and wear the sensible pantsuit and, you know, never do it. Or and if you're me, like you show up in blazing hot damn pink and wave from the audience and say, guess what we're going to talk about today? <laughs> <laughs> and I think for me, like pink in so many ways— uh, it represents the shift from underestimated to unapologetic. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. so important in terms of what I talk to uh, my female founders about today. It's really harnessing in that part of you that is authentically you and never letting anybody take that away. How do I get Justin to make me a pair of sneakers? <laughs> <laughs> it's done. It's done. <laughs> oh, you have, I have sneakers? A, I have an okay. incredibly like sweet and artistic fiance who draws the most incredible sneakers. So he does um, dogs, our pets on sneakers. They're insane. They really are. They're so good. Does he good. have an Instagram account? He does. It's I'm Justin Miller. He's so on cool. Instagram. He's so it's fun. It's so funny because we were sitting at dinner and I'm, you know, I was telling Peter how amazing you are. And then we're sitting and I was like, oh no, he's so much cooler. <laughs> he's so much, <laughs> he is so much cooler he's than so me. You have no idea. You. He's awesome. He's really fun. He's really fun. Um, That's amazing. Well, you're amazing. Thank you. I'm so glad I made you be my friend. <laughs> thank you so thank much. You. For thank you for having so me. Much. Thank you so much for tuning in and please join us next week as we speak with the coolest woman we know, Lena Waith, the truth teller. We are Deborah Messing and Mandana Dayani and you have been listening to The Dissenters. Thank you all so much for tuning in. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review. You can go to thedissenters.com to see the full list of our 20 dissenters. We love seeing the support on social, so please tag us at the dissenters, at the real Deborah Messing, at Mandana Dayani. And please continue sending us suggestions for badass dissenters we should feature. Please tune in next Thursday to meet our next brilliant dissenter. This show is produced by me, Deborah Messing, Mandana Dayani, Erica First, and Dear Media. Our music was written by Brady Cohen and images were shot by Justin Campbell.